fella, Brother Booker, he's a fine Oklahoma boy. He is okay. He is okay. I could tell you some stories about him, but he wouldn't appreciate it, and I'd be in trouble with Daddy when it was over. But Brother Booker, he's known all over Pentecost. He is a tremendous, tremendous man of God. Got a sweet wife, very sweet wife. We're glad that she's able to be here uh, with with him. And uh, Brother Booker, he, he preaches in the biggest churches of Pentecost, but he also, what's so impressive, he also preaches in some of the smallest. He is the same every time you see him. And uh, he'll go, you invite him to preach, and he'll come preach for you. He is a true, true man of God. And uh, let's all stand together and welcome Brother Booker to this pulpit. Praise the Lord, everybody. Let's give the Lord a wonderful hand clap. God, you are so mighty. God, you are so mighty. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this service. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this couple. Thank you for all this represents. We stand in awe of you, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated for a little bit here. I'm going to say it's a very signal honor of mine to... to uh, be here, let alone just to be asked to speak, is a very, very high honor. And I, I'm not just making, using verbiage. I, I mean that from the depths of my heart. And uh, we love this family. We love this pastor and his wife. They are some of the greatest. They are some of the greatest. And so we just, we just, we, we stand in awe. And we were talking last night about how we uh, hooked up in a friendship that's oozing up close to 30 years now. That's really something. Whoa. My hair was brown and I was skinny. And, uh, that's what happens to us, praise God. But uh, it's been a rich, real, wonderful friendship that has been through deep waters, wonderful waters, um, because the greens were there. And so we thank God for that. And there's so many friends here tonight, and I know you came to honor this wonderful man of God and his wife. I, I personally will not... Uh, begin to call names of, of uh, friends of you that are here because I'd, I'd miss somebody that I'm close to and I'd hate that. And I don't want to do that. But I'm glad that Jerry and Barbara Green are here and I'm glad that Jesus is here. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Amen. I will say that I am very honored to have my wonderful wife, Brenda, with me. And she doesn't go with me everywhere, but she said, I am not going to miss this journey. Praise God. She wanted to be here. 
very, very much. And so she is, and we thank God for that. I will make mention of this. Who's, who's the lady that put the basket together? Where are you? Where? Raise your hand. Is she here? Is she uh, probably out back working, making baskets or something? But, you know, there's baskets, and then there's baskets, and then there's works of art. And that was a, that was, that was a work of art. And, um, I mean, who cared about the delicious food? Just all that other stuff. My goodness, amazing. But that's indicative of this church and this church's leadership. And I mean that. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Now I'm going to ask us if we would to stand. We are here for a very, very, very special occasion. And I want to say that these occasions, I I can't prove this. I cannot prove this. And I think that he looks at it different than we do. But I believe these occasions are more special to God than they are to us. And, um, and you say, well, how do you know that? I just, I know how good our God is. And I know that he's a God that appreciates faithfulness big time. And so he also has a way of appreciating appreciation. And so the appreciation that is being shown to this couple, God appreciates he does. He does. I was talking to a minister friend of mine. I'll make this quick. He was pastoring. He just took a church, very small, struggling, a mountain of debts. Minister called him. A well-known preacher was coming. He was going to be preaching in the area. Bottom line, would you like to have him? He's going to preach in five churches. And Well, so he did. And they said, you're centrally located. Bottom line. One by one, everybody canceled. This man's name is, was house. He's gone to be with the Lord, but his name is household in Pentecost. So he said, I ended up, I paid for the seven days of hotel. I took him to eat at the best places. We gave him an offering. He said, I did everything I could to give him an offering that would match everywhere he would have gone. Because he came expecting to be. And he said, Brother Booker, from that day, our money problems were over. He said, from that day, he said, it started and said, our money problems were over. I'm just here to tell you, my salute this church, what you did for Sister Green. Trust me, there's angels saluting you. That's big. That's good. And God takes note of those things. They're not small things. So he appreciates appreciation. And so we're here. Now, if you would turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter number 32. And while you are turning there, I, I, I say this and then here I go. I so humbly apologize that I have to leave tomorrow. Oh. I'd rather you do that than take me in your office and whoop me. (laughs) 
I, I've, I have a long-standing obligation in uh, Indiana, and i got to be there. And so I'm so sorry, and I'm, oh, all the festivities. And so I, I, just, I just apologize. But what a great honor to be here with you tonight. I'm going to, uh, I'm not being uh, disrespectful to the Word of God. But as I kind of ooze my way through some of these verses, rather than read every word, I'm trusting also your familiarity with a lot of it. But we will start reading in Genesis 32, verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall you speak unto my lord Esau, thy brother, thy servant. Jacob saith thus. He probably was making them repeat after him. This is what you're going to say. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. I have, and I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in thy sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to thy brother Esau and also he cometh to meet thee and 400 men with him. Not good. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people that was with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two bands. And he said, if Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. So along about verse 13, he lodges there that night. He begins to send presents to Esau, 200 she-goats. 20 he-goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels or colts, 40 kine cattle and 10 bulls, 20 she-asses and 10 foals. He delivers them to his servants and he, they go drove by drove by themselves. Here comes, here comes the she-goats, here comes the ewes by themselves. And put a space between drove and drove. So he's gift after gift. Verse 30, excuse me, verse 1 of, verse of chapter 33. Jacob lifts his eyes. He looks. Behold, Esau came. He has the 400 men. Please note. He divides the children unto Leah and unto Rachel. And unto the two handmaids. He's now got three bands of children and wives. He puts the handmaids and their children out front. And Leah and her children next. And no doubt there's a space between them. And Rachel and Joseph are hindermost. To his credit, he goes before them. He bows himself to the ground seven times in the process until he comes near to his brother. Let's ask 
that God in his own way would really talk to us tonight. We're mindful of your presence, Jesus. We ask, great gracious God, that your anointing would rest on every single heart, mind, soul, and spirit tonight. Give us ears to hear, hearts to fathom, understand, grasp, lay hold, and not let go of your word and your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you so much. You may be seated. I appreciate your patience in standing. And then also, one last little uh, statement here. Meetings... Special, special meetings like this. You always want to do right. You always want to do the will of God. Uh, But a 45-year statement of faithfulness to this city, to this congregation, to this work, that does not happen every day, and it happens less and less all the time. And the denominal world knows nothing about this. That's ex- it's, it's beyond rare for something like that to happen. For a, for a denominal pastor to pastor 10 years is considered, whoa, the average has just dipped under two years is what I've been told. So 45 years is rare on anybody's scale. And 45 years of this quality is very rare. So you want to do it right, but I, I and so I, I wanted, I, I came prepared with several things that I kind of felt my way through. The problem was I woke up today and none of it fit. And then the bigger problem was this fits even less than the other stuff. But I have this confidence, totally, and I'm, I'm not, I mean this, that I have this confidence that Brother Jerry Green, he just loves the Word of God. And he just wants whatever God wants. So that's what built this church. That's what's kept this church. And so we're home tonight. Praise God. In our, in our text, this, this strange text, this, uh, we, we'll dispense with a lot of the history because this is a knowledgeable congregation. Suffice it to say, Jacob has been gone for 20 years and, uh, when he left his household, he was scooted out the door by his mother, basically his father as well, saying, run for your life, boy. you got a boy, a brother named Esau that's going to kill you if he gets a chance. So he goes and he sojourns in Pedanaram, basically modern-day Syria, and he is there for 20 years. Now he's coming back, and uh, he has... The wife that he loves so dearly, Rachel, he has her sister that kind of got pawned off on him. And then he's got two other wives, a long convoluted story having to do with who's going to come up with the most kids and on and on and on and on and on. And that was a different dispensation. So, and prior to law, certainly prior to grace, but there it was. And uh, so, but 20 years is not that long to hold a grudge. And Esau had a good memory, and so did Jacob. He's been told by God to go back. He's on his way back. 
and cutting through a whole lot of interesting history, behold, Esau came. And he didn't come by himself. He came with 400 men. The Bible does not specifically say they were mounted horsemen. Personally, I can't imagine them not being, but it don't much matter. You know, 401 is still pretty hefty odds. And, uh, and he knows that the last time they had been in the same vicinity, he was swearing oaths concerning Jacob's demise. And so now he hears he's coming, and the Bible says he is greatly afraid and distressed. And I don't believe that it was the great fear of his personal safety. He did have 12, or at that point he had 11 sons. And he had a daughter. And he had servants and he had flocks. And, and so there's more here than just him. And so he, he begins to do some interesting things. He, he begins to send him gift after gift. Here's Esau. Here's his 400 men. Here come, here come the she-goats. Here comes the rams. What's this? This is a present, Lord Esau, from your servant Jacob. Whoa. And then after a while, here comes the bullocks. Here comes the cattle. Here comes the asses. Here comes the mules. Here come, I mean, here comes the donkeys. Here, here, here they come. Here's all of this. And, and, and then... As all this has been sent out, drove by drove, he then, and all the kids are watching this. Now, these kids, they're sharp dudes. They're watching this. And then Jacob says, now, Bildad, Zilpa, you, 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 all you boys, get here. You stand right here. Okay, Leah, you, you and your kids, now you, you get back here about 100 yards or so. And then Rachel, Joseph, you come back here another... 100 yards. Where are we going? We're marching to see Esau. To his credit, Jacob goes ahead of everybody. Falls on his face. To his credit. But he is uptight. They can sense it. They can feel it. They've heard rumors of Esau. They, they know the camp. This has never been quite like this before. And now here's Zilpah, here's Bildad, here's their kids. And them boys are looking over their shoulder to Leah and her brood. And Leah and her boys are looking over their shoulder to Rachel and darling little Joseph. And can I propose to you, that lesson that day was lost on nobody. There's a reason those boys hated Joseph. You don't forget stuff like that. And so what they were finding out that day, in their minds, this was probably, they were using Hebrew, but the verbiage... Is along this line. Well, we know who's expendable now, don't we? We know they didn't have this verbiage, but, well, today we found out who's cannon fodder and who's not. We know this. We'll all be dead before the sun sets if need be. 
But Joseph will not be touched if he can help it. And so, it's on. Now, every now and then I preach about the thief on the cross who was not in the dispensation in which we live. And we know that, so I don't have to belabor that. But it is interesting to me that as Jesus hung on the tree with two thieves between them, both of them casting the same in their teeth, one of them comes to himself. It's late in life. He only has a few heartbeats left, really. And it dawns on him, I've played the fool my whole life. My closing seconds, I cannot play the fool any longer. And so he looks over to Jesus and says, would you please remember me? And Jesus lifts his bruised, battered, beaten, bloodied head. And through blood-stained eyes, he looks at him. And through a mouth where his tongue's cleaving to the roof, he loosens it where he can speak and say, This day you'll be with me in paradise. So he saves a man that will not one time in his life ever come to church. He will never witness to another soul except through scripture. He'll never teach one Bible study. He'll never pass out one single tract. He'll never pay a dime a tithe. He'll never show up at one church work day. He'll never give anybody a ride to church. And on and on and on. He absolutely has nothing to offer the kingdom at all. But he's a soul. And that's what Jesus came for. And so he saves him. And so he saves him. So I had to go through that because... In, 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 in God's economy, nobody is expendable. We have to get that. I want you to appreciate that so that when we go where we're going, you don't read the wrong things into it. Nobody's expendable. If you were the thief on the cross at that time with not one thing ever to offer except contrition. He'd make sure you got to heaven. That's how good our God is. So, with that being said, in our text and this situation with Jacob and his wives and sundry children, it's pretty hard to fathom what all the feelings were that day. I don't know how old Joseph was. I don't know if he if he could catch the the thing that was going on, but you better believe it wasn't lost on Rachel and it wasn't lost on anybody else. And so it's hard to wrap our mind around what Jacob actually did. Amen. And the feelings, and the feeling that he felt he had to do what he did, but he did it. Part of the reason we go back, he was... He was greatly afraid and distressed. 
New Living says Jacob was terrified at the news. Taylor says he was frantic with fear. TM says Jacob was scared, very scared, panicked. But at any rate, in order to protect at all possible costs what was apparently his most prized possession, at least in everybody's mind, he puts Joseph and his mother at the last of the deal. Now, I've got three sons, and you've got five. There's a lot of boys in this room. I feel I can honestly say I would die, gladly die if need be, for any one of my boys. Not even a question. Not even a question. So, for this to take place, it's... It's, it's pretty mind-boggling. It's pretty mind-boggling. So they felt like, well, I guess I'm expendable. And they had to live with that for the rest of their life. Now, I want to talk to us about the subject. Rendering yourself indispensable. That something would rise up in everyone under the sound of my voice that would say, Jesus, if I was a thief on the cross, you'd figure out a way to save me. But at the same time, we're not there, we're here. We're all part and parcel of the kingdom. If you're not part of the kingdom tonight, you can become part of the kingdom tonight. Or you can get back into the kingdom tonight. Not even a question. So with that in our minds, there needs to be something I hope and pray. I just, I'm doing what I feel. God, help us to render ourselves as much as lieth within me, indispensable to the kingdom, indispensable to you, Jesus. Amen. There is a book written by James Thomas Flexner. He wrote a four-volume Commentary on Washington, the indispensable man. He lived from 1908 to 2003. It took him seven years to write those four volumes, and it was finally condensed into one volume, Washington, the indispensable man. And it did not win the Pulitzer Prize, but it received high accolades by the Pulitzer peoples. And he talked about how Washington, of all of the great figures of the revolutionary time frame and some of the most brilliant men that ever lived in America, seemed, I'm just telling you, the American Revolution, you do realize, number one, it's the only successful revolution in world history that lasted enough and did not devour itself. And uh, and so that was amazing, and, and the men that went into it, and, and the things they did, and the sacrifices they made. And then the Constitution that, that they formed, that today people are so blithely playing with like a yo-yo. God help us. Be that as it may, he said, of all of those great towering figures, there was only one man, indispensable. That it could have never happened without him. And he said that was George Washington. And there was a reason. And when they were putting the Constitution together, 
all these disparate colonies and, and ideologies and feelings. And, but they were baking the Constitution with one man in mind. They knew there's only one man that we can trust completely. And that was Washington. And there were so many reasons for that. Now, I don't want to bore you, but he really was not the greatest general. I don't want to hurt nobody's feelings. He wasn't one of the greatest statisticians, generals, strategists. Um, he had tenacity, he had bravery. He knew the meaning of sacrifice, and he never would stop. He never would stop. And, uh, but anyway, they finally got through, and they, they won. And, and uh, Clinton, uh, the British general, he surrendered at Yorktown, and, and it was over. But the Continental Congress was, there's no historian I have ever read that ever, I've never read anybody that gave the Continental Congress any accolades. Nobody. They really were a joke. It was pitiful. All through the war, it was a joke. And uh, there were a big reason that Benedict Arnold became the Benedict Arnold that we know today is because of the ineptness of the Continental Congress. It was just horrible. And so finally, the, the, the revolutionists, the army was sick of it. They had it. The war was over, but it was in shambles. And they said, we are taking over this country. It will be military ran until it can get its act together. And they were set. They didn't want to talk to Washington. They didn't want to talk to nobody. It was the leadership. But Washington was out of the loop because they knew he was so powerful. And so they were just set to do it. Well, the Congress knew about it. They wrote a letter promising the moon, and they, and they said, Washington, you, you're the only one that can save this. And so he called them together, the leaders of this cabal, and, and uh, they, they, didn't want to, they were sitting there. They were sullen. They, we didn't, we'll come because it's you, but we don't want to hear what you've got to say. And, and so he had, a, he had a letter from them in his pocket, and, and uh, he, he pulls out the letter. He says, I have a letter to read to you from the Congress, and... So they're sullen, they're sitting back, their arms are crossed, and he uh, puts it down. He bends over. He steps back. They know it's quiet, there's something happening. He, he picks it up, and they're realizing he can't read the letter. And then he did something nobody had ever seen him do. Alexander Hamilton was his closest aide until the very last of the war when he finally got a command and showed himself unbelievably brave. So they're all watching and they're all starting to sit up and they're paying close attention. Finally, Washington reaches inside his pocket pulls out one of the inventions of Franklin and he gets a pair of reading glasses and they're shocked. Nobody had, nobody had ever seen him. And he starts to put on the reading glasses to read the letter and then he stops and says, I'm sorry, you'll have to forgive me. It seems I have lost my sight as well as my fortune for my country. And the counter-revolution was over. They all started crying. 
They sat in their seats. And the grown men that had fought the British for seven years started weeping. They didn't listen to one thing he said. They cried as he worked his way through their letter. So Washington was the indispensable man. Well, America now is on down the road now. 200 years passed by, well, 225 or whatever. And forgive me using the term, the village idiot knows this nation's in trouble. It's in trouble. But I'm here to tell you, it's the greatest hour for the church that has ever been. It's the greatest hour for the church that we have ever had. And the darker it gets, the brighter this thing's going to shine. Amen. Can I tell I remember reading one time, uh, Marilyn Voss-Savant, somebody said, how could Iran, this modern country, follow someone like the Ayatollah Rahola Khomeini? What, what was in their minds? And she said, when it gets dark, dark, dark enough, even a five-watt bulb seems bright. Well, can I tell you something? Our society's getting dark, 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 darker. But we got the light of the world. Hallelujah. It's our hour. It's our hour. It's our hour. Amen. Now, it's hard for us to fathom, and I'll balance this out later, that, that anyone would ever consider uh, someone being expendable, but we can so render ourselves pitiful that... That, that we seem to become expendable because of unbelievable, silly, ongoing, non-repentant actions. And Ezekiel was dealing with a generation like that. And so in, in, in Ezekiel 7, I would read all of this, but I'm not. I'm just, but he said, Ezekiel, the end, the end is come. It watcheth for thee, it waiteth for thee, behold, it is come. I and I will not spare, neither will I have pity. The end is come. It watcheth. It go- and he goes on and on and on through chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. And it's just, it gets more and more dismal. And you can imagine Ezekiel writing this and, and the tears flowing. The end. I mean, God's through. It's done. It's done. It's going to be over. He's going to wipe off Jerusalem like a man scrapes off a dish. And then he's writing and writing and I can only imagine as his spirits are sinking lower and lower and lower and lower. And then he gets to chapter 14. And he says, and I'm interpolating, but you can read it for yourself. Ezekiel, listen to me. It's so bad that if Noah was here, it's so bad. If Job was here, it's so bad. If Daniel was interceding, they could not save their sons and daughters. I wouldn't even listen to Noah, who were here tonight because of him. I would not listen to Samuel. I would not listen to Job. Do you understand? It's that bad. There's nobody good enough in this generation to save them. They're all gone. 
said, so I'm done. I will not spare. I will not have pity. I'm through. And he's writing this. He said, but Ezekiel, listen to me. You're going to see their sons and daughters come to you. You're going to see boys and girls that if I had not wiped out their parents, they'd have went on just like them. I had to wipe them out to teach them some fear. And that God means what He says and says what He means. And and when they come to you, Ezekiel, they will be a comfort to you when you see their ways and their doings. I'm going to keep a remnant and I'm taking them back. Hallelujah. And we're going to rebuild that nation. And it's going to happen. So I want to talk to us about rendering ourselves by the grace of God indispensable, but God help us don't live so foolishly and carelessly and lackadaisically that you render yourself expendable. Back when the closing days of George W. Bush's presidency, we know what happened economically and all the long-lived forces that have been barely brought came and here we are. And uh, so when that happened, it, the whole world was affected. Of course, Canada as well. And my friend Johnny King, pastors in Calgary, it affected them as well. There's a man in his church. I love him. His name's Andy. Andy Bentley. And uh, Andy is quite a guy. Andy, years and years ago, used to be a hippie, used to be a druggie, came to God, got his act together. After a while, he became a Microsoft salesman. And they, when he signed on for Microsoft, he told him, he said, I accept the position. I appreciate it. But I'm going to tell you, I'll work for you. I'll work hard. I think you'd be glad you hired me. But I will never, this is him. I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm just telling you what he did. I will never put this job or anything you ask of me to do ahead of anything I've got going for my church. Well, they said, yeah, all right, whatever. Well, he became the number one Microsoft salesman in all of Canada. And he was so good. I mean, he was tough. He was winning. He was walking away with awards and all kinds of stuff and bonuses. And So one day they, they called him and said, hey, man, you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay. Get out your calendar. Okay. Why, what's up? On such and such a date, you are going to eat supper in Bill Gates' house with him. So Andy goes to his calendar and said, I'm sorry, that ain't going to work. <laughs> they said, yeah, right. They said, no, I'm, I, I can't make that date. <laughs> what do you mean you can't make it? This is Bill Gates, dude. He wants you in his house to eat supper. Well, I got a church function that night, and I can't make it. And he didn't go. And they did not fire him. And when he did leave years later, it was on his terms. And he's doing quite well, thank you. 
So when all this was economic downturn was spiraling down, Brother King had him said, I want you to talk to all the men in the church. And so he got them all together, and this was his subject matter, how to keep your job in a faltering economy. So his talk was very, very simple. And he said, every boss has a list, if not literal, at least mental or otherwise. It's at least emotional. But every boss have a, has a list. They have an A, B, C list in their mind. They may not call it that, but it's there. It's in the heart. And so those that are on the C list are people that work for their company that really, they're looking for an excuse to get rid of them. They are always late, they're lazy, they're, they're, they cut corners, they're indolent, they got an attitude, and, but maybe they're in a union and there ain't nothing you can do about it. But when times get tough, those on the C-list are the first to go. And he said, just mark it down, boys. You're on C, B, or A. One of them. And then he said, now the B-list, those are good dependable people. They're what you call keepers. However, when real crunch time comes, B-list people do become expendable. It's not that they enjoy it. It's not that they want it. But if they have to, they do. But A-list people are indispensable. They will not be let go. They're the ones that always go the extra mile. They're the ones that find out what the managerial staff likes or boss likes, how he or they like it, and they get it done. Case in point, say if it's a trucking company, a B guy is faithful, he's loyal, he's there on Mondays, not with a hangover. He's there on Fridays, not to go get drunk early. He's, he's, he works his job, he's, he's good. If the truck breaks down, though, he don't know how to fix it. But an A-list guy does everything the B-list guy does, but he learns how to fix that truck. Unless it's impossible. He's not going to be calling a tow truck unless he has no choice. He'll change a fan belt. He'll fix this. He'll change his time. He'll do something because he's A-list. Now, if you, if you get in a crunch of the two, which one we can't do without that guy? He's made himself indispensable. I, uh, a pastor man, and uh, he spent most of his life in prison. In fact, we had a man in our church. He recently died. He was, he was wheelchair bound. He used to be big, strong, and he was a prison guard. And, and so, but he was in the, we, we, we carried him into a swimming pool with his wheelchair and baptized him in Jesus' name. And he got the Holy Ghost. And so he was coming good, but then he began to slack off, quit coming. And so we got to talking to him and he said, well, I'm just going to tell you why I'm not coming. He said, I got to looking around the church and he said, there's 10 men in this church. I used to guard them. 
either in, in city jails, county jails, state prisons, or federal pen. And I was not a nice man. And I, I've counted ten guys. I, and I'm scared. He said, I was not nice. He said, and I'm just waiting for one of them to come and see me. And I said, man, listen, they were in prison. They were on those side of the bars. You were on this side of the bars, but you were all in prison. If they knew who you were, they'd hug you. They'd say, thank God. I'm going to tell you something. If the government knew what all our churches were doing, they'd be paying us. I'm telling you. So this guy was one of them. And, and I remember when he started his little business and, and came and had his pray and this and that. He's one of the biggest tithe payers and givers in the church because he's put God first. Most his life in prison. Well, he has a smog machine. That's what's on the title of his business. But they do everything. But I've asked him when I was working on this. I said, I said, Johnny boy. I said, now, if your lift breaks, what do you do? Ah, we get it. We get it fixed. We use jacks if we got to do that. How many days it takes? I mean, well, you know, it can take a while. If somebody gets sick, what do you do? Well, we just, everybody sucks it up and we just work a little harder and we get, we get stuff done. If tool breaks, what do you do? I said, I got a question for you, Johnny boy. If your smog machine breaks, what do you do? He said, I'll go borrow one. But there will not be an hour that smog machine's down. We have to have the smog machine. I said, you got somebody that runs it? Everybody learns how to run the smog machine. I said, so that smog machine and its operators are indispensable to your business. He said, indispensable. We won't do with it for an hour. Without it for an hour. Now, listen to me. When we come to the kingdom of God, listen, there ain't nobody in this building but what somewhere along our journey we all could have been fired Every one of us could have been fired several times over. He said, no, I couldn't have been fired. You got fired for your attitude. If he was in the business. So when I talk about us making ourselves indispensable, we know there's none good, no, not one, save God. His mercy is what's indispensable. His name, His doctrine, His word, His spirit, the altar, that's indispensable. So with that in mind, we understand that. But at the same time, Jesus, you've been so good to me. Help us. Help me help us to say, God... You've picked up so much of my trash all my life. I'm going to tell you something. You ain't going to just find trash on my doorstep. I'm going to give you the best I got in me. I'm going to give you the best. I'm going to give you the best of my time. I'm going to give you the best of my energy. I'm going to give you the best of my... Come on, God! I'm going to do my best to render myself indispensable to you. Now, how near can a guy get to that with God? Well...
I read of a man named Moses, and God was so angry with those entire people. He was. He said, Moses, step aside. I'm fixing to have a house cleaning. I don't care. I know you're 80 plus, but we're fixing to start over. We're going to take care of all of them. And, uh, and then I'm going to start this new nation with you. And, and Moses steps in between. No, 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 God. God says, let me alone, Moses. No, 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 God. If you're going to start, start with me. Now, I'm going to just stop here and say this. Known unto God are all of his works before the beginning of creation. God knew there was a day coming. He's going to be so upset. I'm going to need a friend at the right place at the right time to intercede because I'm... Now, if God knew he needed to have the right person, the right place, the right time to make intercession for the people, I think we owe it to ourselves to pick some good friends. Duh! I see people go, they pick friends like... Not being ugly, smart aleck, but come on, buddy, you need good friends. And when you get a good one, you better hang on to them, buddy. You need a friend to take you to the woodshed, that's the kind of friend you need. You need a friend that'll talk to you, that's the kind of friend you need. You need a friend that'll pray for you, there's a time and a place you're going to need them. Furthermore, not only do we need those kind of friends, we need to be those kind of people in other people's lives. Amen. One day, Jesus was in the temple, and while he was there, the disciples were agog, looking and saying, Jesus, look at that. Look at that. Those columns. Look at the work on the tops of the pillars. Look at the glory. Look at this. Look at and, and And Jesus is not watching that. Here is some very wealthy, affluent people. And that's good. That's fine. And they're, they're putting money, and, and they're going their way. Jesus is not looking at anybody except one little widow woman. His eyes are following her. And she makes her way. And she gets as close as she can to the pan. A little bucket. She lets two coins slip out of her fingers. and She keeps oozing on down. And the disciples, Jesus, look at this, look at that. And, G- and one of them said, boy, did you see what that guy just dropped in? Whoa, dude. Yeah. And Jesus says, stop. Yeah. At least in the spirit. Hey, boys, you see that woman right there? Which one? The one with the ragged dress. With patches. The one with a shawl around her shoulders that's ripped in two. You see her there? Yeah. She just outgave everybody in this place. What is she, a real rich old lady that don't ever give nothing? Is she a hoarder and she finally let loose? What is it? What'd she do? Look on the top there, that offering. What do you see? I see silver. I see, no, no, right there. We, what? The mites. Do you see the mites? The two widows, mites, the whites. Yeah, that's what she gave. 
and they think he's losing it. No, no, no. His economy, he looks at life different. And if you've got it to give, you better give. You hear me. But that's all she had. That was the only thing between her and nothing. And that's what she gave. And as far as Jesus was concerned, this temple's coming down. There's a day coming. There won't be a stone left on another. It's expendable. All these men, all that. It's expendable. But that little woman, as far as I'm concerned, has rendered herself indispensable. Point being, it don't matter who you are or where you are or how long you've been in this church. We have the ability to give it our best shot and God take notice. It's like a lady prayed through about two years ago. Because we were having a family day every time there's a fifth Sunday of the month. We have service at one thirty. Have good, good service. Everybody brings their friends. And we advertise it and, and people come because they know at the end of it there's a free meal. And then they play games and we eat and everything. And, and she's riding down the road with her three kids. She'd been in church for a year before we found out. I was riding down the road. I had not one thing in my house to feed my babies not even a cracker and we were all hungry and I was driving by and I saw your sign and she said I will at least get my kids something to eat but she came to the altar because Jesus said I have bread you know not of And I got water. I'll drill a well in you, lady. It'll. And so here this woman is. Now she's got a good job. My son got it for her. And she's going on. But that's not. I'm here to tell you. I go by the church. She works before. She goes to work. She's there praying. After she gets off work, she comes and prays. Somewhere in the night, she will come and pray. Saturday, she's in there three or four times on prayer day. Amen. She's rendered herself indispensable. If I got a need, I go to her and say, would you pray about this and so? And you can rest assured, she will take it to God in prayer. It's within everybody's reach. Because his thoughts aren't our thoughts and his ways aren't our ways. So I'm cutting through to the chase. He had thousands of disciples. But within that, he had a 70 group that he would send out at time by two and two. But then within that, he had the 12 apostles. But then within that, he had Peter, James, and John. But within that, there was John. There was John. 
that would lean his head on his bosom that would be the only one to make it to the tree and he could commit his mother into his hands. And he loved them all and he died for them all. But somehow John would work. And, and they knew this. They, the disciples, they understood that. You know, there's only five people specifically that it says Jesus loved. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. He loved their brother Lazarus. He loved the rich young ruler that walked away. And then it says he loved John. The beloved apostle. And one day after the resurrection... Simon Peter's counting the fish they've caught and he's cleaning them. And Jesus said, you love me more than these? Oh, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Do you love me more than these? You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Simon, do you love me more than these? And in my mind, he puts down... The knife and says, you know, I love you. You know all things. He said, when you were young, you girded yourself. You went where thou wouldest. When you get old, others will gird you and take you where thou wouldest not. This big key signifying by what death he would glorify God. He knew it was martyrdom. He knew it. Amen. There were, there were seven there that day. They knew it. So he says, okay. He looks at John. So I'm going to die like that, huh? What about your beloved? What shall this man do? And Jesus said, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? You follow me. And John's writing... He said, then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple should not die. So they got him a nice, neat, tidy little pre-John rapture theory out of that. That's exactly what they got. So John's correcting that pre-John rapture theory. Yet he said, not unto thee thou shalt not die. But what if I will that he tarry till I come? This is that disciple. So in my mind, this is why it doesn't bother me if, if people don't see it like I do. I'm pan. Pre-made or post. I don't know what it's going to be. It's going to pan out. You just live for Jesus. Hallelujah. And it used to bother me that some was this, some of that. And it bothered me. And it really bothered me. And I was really troubled. One day, the Lord spoke. I could take you to the place in Bartlesville where I pulled over my truck. And I grabbed my Bible and started reading. I could take you to the spot. And I realized the first the apostles, there was a saying among the brethren, John ain't going to die. And they had scripture for it. He said, there's some here among you who won't taste death till you see the kingdom come. Yeah. And then, he's the only one who apparently died a natural death. I have no doubt. When he would lean up against the house, people come into the church, bless you little children. There was a evangelist. I saw John last week. He's getting feeble. You better get in church tonight. <laughs> and there's probably a lot of people prayed through. But when John died, it got tight. And then they started reading. You know, John said, that's not what he said. 
My point being, all I know, he was expendable. But he hung around a long time. And there was a special touch with him. I'm closer to being done than what you think. He's not a respecter of persons. Second Chronicles 19.7, Romans 2.11, Ephesians 6.9, Colossians 3.25, 1 Peter 1.17. God is no respecter of persons, but he is a respecter of attitudes. He respects attitudes. That's why he could say, Amen, Abimelech, you need to repent, dude. That man Abraham's a prophet. And Abimelech would say, Well, your prophet told me that was his sister. That's okay. You repent. He'll pray for you. I'll heal your house. Because he saw attitudes that were good in Abraham. Amen. And I could go on and on. David would build a tabernacle in Jerusalem while the regular tabernacle is still at Shiloh. And the Ark of the Covenant is out there in front of God and everybody. And everybody could come and worship in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant while the other temple, the tabernacle is still in Shiloh. And sacrifices. How did he get by with that? To the point, God said, he's a type of the church as far as I'm concerned. And then Amos, he said, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. And when the Holy Ghost started falling in Jerusalem, they said, this is what Amos was talking about. We're going back to the days of David and the glory of God. How could he do that? He's not a respecter of persons. He was such a respecter of David's unbelievable attitude and type. He's a respecter of Joseph's attitude. He's a respecter of Daniel's attitude. And he will be a respecter of ours if we let him. Musicians come. I'm coming to the most important part, and I'm almost done. And I know we're not running ulcers. How does God see us? How does God view us? Are we a glorifier or a gossiper? Are we a tither or a robber? Are we faithful or unfaithful? Are we givers or takers? Are we worshipers or complainers? Are we workers or slackers? Do we build others up or do we go around tearing people down? Are we blessers or blasphemers? Are we thankful or are we unthankful? Are we striving to do our best to make ourselves indispensable? stand say this is nice what's it got to do with the 45th anniversary Isaiah 13 speaks of a time the prophet saw it coming when a man being more precious than fine gold even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir Brother Green, Sister Barbara, would you mind coming up here, Sister Green? Standing with your good husband.
already been mentioned. The fingerprints of this man and this woman. You talk about a team. Now there are teams and there are teams. This is one of the greatest teams I've ever seen. Sister Barbara Green does not. I've never seen her put herself forward ever. But in her own quiet, sweet, strong way, she helps this man. How many testimonies are in this church? And even of people that maybe are not now here or are not even living for God. And this man's fingerprints are on not just preachers, but people all over this country and world. How valuable is that? Somebody say, but nobody's indispensable. I know, I've already said that. None of us are. There are some that are, by their life and walk, have made themselves so valuable that we can't even wrap our heads around the thought of their fingerprints not being on our lives. Them being on the end of the phone and the need comes or whatever. You hear me? This couple... How valuable is this man and his wife to this church, to this area, to this city, to the one God, Jesus name, apostolic movement? How valuable are they? And have they proved themselves to be to the message of one God, Jesus name, apostolic in doctrine, sanctity, holiness, righteousness? How We've all lived long enough to see somehow so many, they get up in years, they start wavering. They start blowing with the wind as it goes. Not them. How valuable. They have rendered themselves utterly, absolutely, Beautifully, supremely valuable to the kingdom. And it's within everybody's power under the sound of my voice for us to step up to the front of our own walk and say, Jesus, I'm not much, but I'm going to give more of myself to you than I ever have. You'd still make a way. I'm not much, but with what I've got, it may be just two widow's mites. I'm not much, but I'm going to give myself. And we're going to step forward and say, Jesus, we're going to strive. Teaching, preaching, Bible studies, praying, giving, working, laboring, whatever. And so I'm speaking to this church and to everybody under the sound of my voice. In just a moment, I'm turning the microphone to Pastor Jerry Green. But is there anybody, there's something beating in your heart. Remember, you only got so many heartbeats left. That's all of us.
you'd like to bring that heart down and step forward and just say, Jesus, I want to give it my best shot. I'm not perfect, but I, I, I want to give my best shot. I want to do everything I can. Show me if it's picking up papers or around the parking lot. I don't care. I want, I want to give my best shot. If you're not a member of this church, but there's something beating in your heart that says, there's a work to be done, and by the grace of God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to lift up the hands of the ministry. I'm going to back the work of God. I'm going to teach. I'm going to reach. I'm going to talk. I'm going to do whatever I can. These folks have spent 45 years of their life in this city for this work. God, I don't know how much time I got left, but I want to give it my best shot. You can't give a cup of cold water. But what? You'll make sure you get 